not a situation that is not a pain, that's not a tragedy, that God can't flip, that he can't turn around, that he can actually redeem everything. Yeah? And I guess that's where I, I want to... I wonder if I could just sit down the whole... So that'd be awesome. I could just sit down the whole sermon. Mal, can you bring me a coffee? Anyone got a biscuit for me? Um, we've been talking about pain and heartache, tribulation, some of the stuff that we do to ourselves, uh, some of the stuff that people do to us, life in itself, just what comes at, comes at us, how we deal with that. And I, I want to continue in, in that in that vein but what I want to focus on is that you and I we are actually destined for redemption we're destined to be redeemed every broken area of our life is destined God can actually turn it around and I think sometimes the only thing that we need to do for that and I love the song and I loved your words Mel is run to the father is actually to position ourselves for that redemption to position ourselves and so that's that's where I'm going to go because he can flip it. He can turn it. That's what he does. You know, he does it over and over. Just have a look in the scriptures. Everything the enemy does, God takes it. You know, that jujitsu master, he takes the momentum, turns it around, and he works it for good, yeah? Well, um, I imagine that there are many of us here that have had pain, and I'd probably even go as far as suggesting that there are some here that are some that are, that are listening, that in life, you and I have made decisions that have marked us that have actually marked our lives. We have a God and we sit in a place and I can promise every one of you this, that in his presence he can take that and he can redeem that and he can turn that around. Yeah, We may feel as though that what we've done, the decisions that we made, the things that we've said, all of that stuff has marked us for life, but God, God himself can redeem our story. You know, last week I said that bad decisions, failures, they don't define us. They simply give us an opportunity to be more like Jesus. So for you and I today, how do we get our redemptive story? You know, how, how do we get that when often it looks so far away? Yeah. And so, Father, I ask that you would speak into this space, into that place. Lord, that today hearts would be set free, that hope would be rekindled. Lord, that that flame, that ember, Lord, would be roaring. Father, I pray today that things would shift and things would move, that where places, God, where things and situations seem dry, I pray, God, that you would bring purpose and plan and destiny to it all. So have your way this morning, we pray. Have your way. So God, God is writing stories of redemption. That's what he does. He writes stories of reversal. Stories of turning stuff upside down and turning it around, you know. Um, I, I guess if you were going to use the vernacular of today, he's the best spin doctor, the best salesman, the way that he takes something and he turns it around. And he loves to take what the enemy means for good, uh, for bad and use it for good. He loves to do that. But often, 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 regardless that that's his heart, we can miss that because we've not positioned for that. Now, I'm not a surfer. I've never been surfing. But I've watched my boys as they've begun surfing recently and even getting lessons, you know. Now, one of the lessons I watched, one of the things I learned from observing was, you know, the guy taught them how to stand, how to kneel on the board, how you should lay, where you should lay, how you should paddle, all that sort of stuff. But once he got 
those fundamentals out the way, what he really taught them was how to catch the wave, where to position the board. So first he taught them this is where you've got to swim to, you know, just after the break, before the wave starts coming in, if you sit yourself around there, then you're going to have a greater chance of catching the wave. So when they started to do that and catch a few waves, get on the board successfully and unsuccessfully, after about half an hour or so, he took them aside and said, okay, you got that. Now what I'm going to get you to do, the waves are actually running this way, so if you turn your board in this direction, position it here, you'll catch every wave. Because at the moment you're running straight towards the beach, but the waves are running this way. Position your board here. So for me, it didn't look all that difficult. It, doesn't, it really doesn't. It doesn't look all that difficult. You just have to position your board right. So with that premise, <laughs> right, I'm going to say this. God's redemptive story for our life isn't that difficult. We just have to position our board right, Yeah. We just really have to position our board right. So how, how do we position ourselves then for God to flip, for God to turn over, to turn upside down our stories? And I, I want us today, we're going to have a look at Ruth and we're going to try to get through a whole bunch of that book because I just think there are examples here that we can learn and live by. You know, God's redemptive story for our life is all here. And so for those of you that are here today, for those that are watching at home, yeah, for all of you... If you have a choice to make on how you'll handle or go through a situation in life right now, I believe some of us do. And I think we can learn from Ruth. I think she can actually show us how to properly position ourselves on the choices that we make. Yeah? So the first thing that you and I have to do, apparently, as far as Ruth is concerned, is we actually have to immerse ourselves in the places of God. So Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And it reads, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, if that's pronounced correctly. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were oh, really something from Athens, like tidies from Bethlehem in Judah and they went to Moab and they lived there well you know I just couldn't get the word show me grace now there's actually a lot going on in these verses come on compose there's a lot going on in these verses because it mentions Bethlehem twice it mentions Moab twice and so I just want to say this, whenever you see repetition in Scripture, yeah, it's actually it's like a torch saying, listen, have a look at this, study this. You, you want to find out what I'm trying to say right here, right now. Yeah, it, it's, it, it is such a clue. The Jewish reader, if you were Jewish and you were reading this, they would have leaned in straight away. As soon as they saw that the author started to list names, they would have been on it. Okay, what is God saying right now? Because there are so many names that are mentioned. Names that I can pronounce, names I can't pronounce. And in the Jewish culture, names carried meaning. Yeah? And these names weren't just to identify the person. They actually become a definer of their character as well. Now, a name in Jewish times, they suggest, was a prophetic description, if you like, of the person. It laid out, it defined basically two paths 
that that person could take, a good path and a bad path. They didn't get to determine how it was going to play out, but they got to determine who they would align themselves with. You know, would they align themselves with God's narrative for their life? Or, or would they trust in him or would they trust in themselves? Now, there's a great quote by Viktor Frankl. He was a psychologist, but he's also a Holocaust survivor. And he says this, everything... It, actually, this is so poignant for the season that we're in right now. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one, one's own way. I love that. The last of the human freedoms to choose one, one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Man, the world could listen to that. So the first name, as we read, is Elimelech. And Elimelech actually means God is king, but we've got a problem. I have a problem with that because as you read it, Elimelech just left the land, the territory that God actually said he would protect and provide, the promised land. He left that. But at one point of Elimelech's life, he actually trusted God. God was was on the throne of his heart. But now things are getting a little bit shaky. They're getting a bit eerie. They're getting a little bit difficult. There's no food. And he begins to take matters, as I think we often all do, into his own hands. And so what does he do when things get tough? He leaves when the famine comes. He actually gets up and leaves the place that God said, I'll protect you there. I'll provide for you there. He leaves it. And he goes, of all places, into an enemy's territory. He goes to Moab. That's a problem. Not only is that a problem, it's a problem because of where he went, because Moab was really close to Bethlehem. That you should even just remember for yourselves. The enemy's camp is always very near to God's camp. Yeah, doesn't take much to change your path. But Moab was also drier than Bethlehem. Yeah, also drier than Bethlehem. So even though Elimelech's name means God is king, instead of trusting God as, as, you know, as the throne of his life, he actually picks up his family and he goes to the enemy's kingdom and he says, I, I think you can protect us better. I, I think you can actually take care of us and feed us in this famine better. And in fact... While we're here and you're taking care of us, I want, I want your sons, you know, I want your granddaughters to marry my sons. Basically, he was saying, you know, my sons are not worth a whole lot. They're not very good. You know, I need someone else to protect us as God didn't give me very good sons. I mean, Malon, his name means invalid. Killian, his name means wasting away. Like these parents really thought about it, didn't they? <laughs> so Elimelech didn't have confidence in his sons. He didn't have confidence in God to provide. So according, you won't find this in scripture, but according to the Jewish Madrash, you actually, what you find is that Elimelech actually strikes up like a, a strategic, a political deal with the king of Moab. And they say that it's probably Balak. And and it, that deal is for the granddaughters, Ruth and Orpah, to marry his sons. Who did Elimelech trust in a time of famine? God or his, 
or his own way, his own position. See, when, when pressure hits our life, it actually exposes who's on the throne of our life. When dry places come, when tragedy comes, when life gets tough, it actually shows us who sits on the throne of our life. It really does. And now, because he removes himself from the protection of God, tragedy comes and strikes in his life. Tragedy didn't come because he removed himself from the protection of God. Tragedy came and happened because we live in a sinful, fallen world and he left the protection of God. Does that make sense? So many can try to share it in a different way, but it's not like that. Life can be really difficult. It can be hard, but God is good all the time. He, he can't do evil. It's not in his persona, in his character. Life can be full of tragedy, but for you and I, Jesus said, take heart in the midst of your sorrow because I've overcome the world. So when you and I are talking about seeing a, a, a redemption, seeing a redemptive story happen for our lives, we have to position ourselves in the things of God, in the places of God, amongst the people of God. How do we overcome tragedy? Like Literally, when tragedy comes and hits our lives, how do, how do we overcome it? We'll actually see that in a second in, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, as we continue to read. And it says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, I feel like being Greek for a minute. Oh, but anyway, just don't dance. And the other, Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Killian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So tragedy strikes. The first tragedy, the husband dies. The next two tragedies, her sons die. Now, now you have Naomi, who's not only a widow, yeah, but has now also lost her two sons and she has daughter-in-laws that are both widows. So in fact, when you read Ruth, when you read the story of Ruth, it could probably be called the story of three widows, legitimately, yeah? But this story of three widows actually has three different responses to pain, three different responses to tragedy, three different decisions on how they're going to handle their trials and their tragedy in life. And it helps you and I, it helps us. It shows us how we can handle the trials and tragedies of our lives. So we need to catch this just before we go on to settle our hearts, yeah? That no matter what circumstance we face in life, yeah? No matter what circumstance that you and I face in life, we have a decision to make. We can't control what happens to us, but we can always control how we respond to what happens to us, yeah? Now, Ruth, chapter 1, we're going to go to verses 6 and 7. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So God actually comes through in the end in Bethlehem where they'd left originally. And often for you and I, God comes through, yeah? 
But it always seems at the 11th hour. And if you choose Moab over Bethlehem, you might miss what God's about to do because you left in your own might. We'll keep reading, but we're going to jump to verse 14. As they wept aloud again, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. See, what's happening here is that Naomi basically saying, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. And she's trying to persuade them, go back home. Go, where, go back to where you came from. Yeah. Look, said Naomi, verse 15. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So she was trying to persuade them to go. Orpah makes a decision to go back home, to go back where she came from. But, but Ruth makes a different decision. You know, I mentioned earlier that names are really important, particularly in Jewish culture. Orpah actually means the back of your neck. Yeah? So what Orpah did, she literally turned her back on the people and places of God to go home. That's what she did. And, and she went back to Moab. And Moab was a region that was known for being just short of the promised land. What did she miss out because of her decision? What have we missed out because of some of the decisions that we've made? Coming up short, compromising, turning back. But Ruth, <laughs> the first step in, in, in our redemptive story, in our redemptive process, our redemptive journey, if you will, is Ruth decided to attach herself to the things of God. You're in a position like... Um, like Fiona, you have to attach yourself to the things of God. You'd be mad to consider anything else. That's the first step. Position yourself where the things of God are. She wasn't going back to Moab. Moab is drier than Bethlehem. No matter how difficult your season is right now, the grass is not greener on the other side. And in fact, Ruth... What a mindset Ruth would have had because she would have said, I'm going to go to where the presence of God is. I don't know this God. <laughs> I love it. I don't even know this God, but I've heard Naomi talk about him and I've seen the peace that Naomi's had. So I, I'm just going to, and she's so strong, I'm just going to follow her and her God will be my God and her people will be my people. I love that. She's never even met this God. She's just seen him work in another person's life. So Bethlehem was dry, but Moab was drier. And I think sometimes when things get really hard in our lives, when they get difficult, when they get dry, we want to jump ship. You know, we want to see if it's better somewhere else. You know, oh, this relationship's dry, this marriage is dry. You know. So instead of leaning into it, instead of working in instead of cultivating the dry soil to produce fruit we jump ship but jumping ship is always drier it's always worse to run away or escape you know you and i we have a choice 
We have a choice every day, but we have a choice on whether we're going to Bethlehem or going to Moab. You know, they say that the best grapes or the best wine and the best grapes are actually grown in the driest soil. Did you know that? I can think of a movie with Russell Crowe where the best grapes were under the rocks. And Anyway, good movie. Let's digress. Why is that? Why, does it, why do the best grapes that thus produce the best wine grow in the driest soil? It's really simple. They'll tell you, winemakers will tell you, because the vine has to struggle. The vine has to struggle, yeah? That's an amazing spiritual principle for us because sometimes our lives get dry and God will even allow our lives to get dry. Allow, not not make, allow our lives to get dry. Why? Because the vine has to struggle. Doesn't it say in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, even in your struggle, I'm adding, yeah? Even in your struggle, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So we have to stay in Jesus because the best fruit is born out of dry, struggling soil. You know, there are three questions that, we've got to, that we're going to go over, that we're going to answer, I guess, to a degree, but some questions that need to be answered when it comes to positioning ourselves for redemption. And, and the first is this, what new places do you and I have to immerse ourselves in this year? What, what new places? What would it look like to actually place ourselves in spaces where God can move in our lives? What would that look like? Because maybe it means quitting your job because it's a toxic workplace. I don't know, these are just, you know, maybe it, maybe it means worshipping at home more because you don't normally do it naturally. Maybe it's the dancing in the living room. Maybe it's going to a connect group slash friendship group because normally you don't go out another night. What would it look like to position yourself in spaces where the presence of God is? What would it look like? And, and then, what new people do we have to surround ourselves with? Because if we're going to position ourselves for redemption, we have to surround ourselves with the people of God. Ruth begins to surround herself with a certain type of people. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, it reads, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Boaz happens to mean strength, by the way. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favour in. Because in that day, the people that owned the land and worked the land, they would go through and they would pick the field, but they were told, don't pick everything. If stuff falls to the ground, leave it. Leave it for those that don't have. Leave it for the foreigners, the aliens, the orphans, the widows. Leave it for them. Man, I, I love that because today we're scraping the Vegemite out of the jar until there's nothing left, yeah? <laughs> A different, totally different mindset. So here they are and she's working. This woman, Ruth, is working. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So not only does she somehow connect herself 
with the king who left the promised land, but she finds a man whose name is strength. And I think that's really important because in the Jewish culture, names are really important. If his name means strength, Ruth is drawn to this field, I believe, because she's drawn to the people working in that field because they are a people of strength. Yeah? The spirit of the work that's happening in that field, because it belongs to Boaz and his name means strength, is totally a spirit of strength. Now, if she's now surrounding herself with these people of strength, that's who she begins to, I guess, gleam off. What are people of strength like? They're encouragers. Yeah? They're grace-filled. They're, they're character-rich. They, they lift you up. They speak into your destiny. They speak into your redemptive story. They don't gossip. Because let me, let me just say this. If you sit with someone and they're gossiping about someone, when they're sitting with someone, they're going to gossip about you. Yeah? That's not a person of strength. What do people of strength look like? Dave Ramsey is a Christian author in the States. He actually says that you will become the average of your 10 closest friends. Not your one or two, your ten. Who's in your circle of ten that is not a person of strength? And you're wondering why you're not experiencing redemption in your life. Who are we surrounding ourselves with? Ruth begins to surround herself with a certain type of people, a people of strength. You know, maybe this year, maybe, maybe, maybe this year, we have to change our circle of friends. And reposition ourselves amongst the people of God. Mel said it before. We're not made to do this alone. Yeah? The outcome of our story, whether you want to agree with it or not, is totally influenced by the people we surround ourselves with. We also have to remind ourselves of the promises of God. In Ruth 1, chapter 19, it says, So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? And Naomi answers, she says, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. <laughs> they were excited to see Naomi. The people there, the family there, because she had gone back home. They were excited to see her. Can this be Naomi? But she answers, don't call me that. Don't call me that. Call me Mara. Because my life has been full of tragedy. Naomi means sweet. So she's saying, don't call me that. Don't call me sweet. My life's not been sweet. It's been full of tragedy. Call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. Instead of letting tragedy refine her, Naomi actually chooses to let tragedy define her. She allows herself to be, to be defined by her situation. She put a label on it. How many times do we label ourselves, all of us, yeah, because of our trial, our tragedy, our situation, our circumstance? How often do we do that? I'm divorced. I'm widowed. 
I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm unemployed, I'm an addict, I'm an idiot. We put this I am, this, this descriptor in front of who we are. But we're not depressed, you are not depressed, you are not anxious. You have feelings, you've got to hear this, you have feelings of depression, you have feelings of anxiety, they are real. But you and I, we are so much more than our feelings. The problem is, we're giving ourselves a permanent identity based on a temporary circumstance. Now, we're not those things. We may feel them at times. We may experience them. But the promises of God, the stuff that we're supposed to remind ourselves of if we're going to position ourselves for redemption, the promises of God speak a better word over our lives. We're chosen, we're his children, we're saved, we're redeemed, we're called, we're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, sons and daughters. That's who we are. We actually have had someone purchase our naming rights. You think about it, you watch, the, the, particularly here in Australia, the, the football, the AFL, and you look at the stadiums, apart from the MCG, but most other stadiums, you've got companies that pay an ungodly amount for naming rights. Mars Stadium, Etihad Stadium, Shell Stadium, I don't know, all these different stadiums. They, they, they pay all this money so that they can name that stadium, they claim who it is. Jesus paid the price, the ultimate price for our naming rights. We are not our situation. Like, you've got to hear me, we are not our situation. We have to quit labelling ourselves by our problems and start labelling ourselves by God's promises. You and I, we are the only true. Like, if, you, if you're a truck driver, Ross will tell you, if you're a truck driver, the trucks have got limiters on them so they can't go too fast. You and I, we are the only limiters that actually prevent and stop God's redemptive purposes in our life. No man, no woman can steal a redemption story from God or from us. And I love this thought. God gives Adam, yeah, in Genesis, God gives Adam dominion, doesn't he? Not only does he give him dominion, he gives him the ability and the authority to name all the animals. So that he that names has dominion. He that names has dominion. Our situation does not have dominion. We have dominion. Remember and speak the promises of God over your life. Speak and name what God and how God sees you. The person who names has dominion, not our situation. Let's get dominion over our story, over our emotions, over our thoughts. You want to change your circumstance? Let's start by naming the promises of God over our lives. Let's take captive every thought. And let's rename stuff when anxiety kicks in, when depression, struggle, stress, when those things kick in. Mara names it by her problem. Ruth doesn't. Ruth actually chooses a different path. And this is where redemption kicks in. In chapter 3 of Ruth, verses 6 and 9, this is really exciting. I'm looking forward to this part. So when she went down to the threshing floor, and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. 
When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in, a, was in good spirits, verse 7, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of your family. So she finds this guy, Boaz, whose name means strength. And Ruth approaches him quietly and uncovers his feet and lays there. Do you know in Hebrew, uncovering his feet actually means uncovering his circumcision? She snuck in and she uncovered his circumcision. The same phrase is also used in Exodus chapter 4, verse 24. We know in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of the promise that God had given to the Israelites. Yeah? There was nothing inappropriate going on here. Nothing sexual was happening here. But what she did, Ruth, by doing that, was actually reminding Boaz that he'd made a promise, a covenant with God, that he is and was his kinsman redeemer. And so Boaz responds, and what does he do? He actually purchases the rights for Ruth, and he brings her into a family. You tell me that doesn't show us and give us a glimpse of what Jesus did for us. The truth is, that Ruth should never have been written about. Never. She was living amongst the enemies of God. She's a widow. She's a foreigner. And yet she becomes one of the most famous great-great-grandmothers in history. Who would you say is the most famous king in all Jewish history? Most would say David, true? Ruth was the great grandmother of King David. In chapter 4 of Ruth, verse 16, it reads, And Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. I've always wondered why Boaz took a risk to redeem Ruth. Boaz's mum was Rahab the prostitute. <laughs> redemption, 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 redemption. And now watch God at work. Ruth's grandson was David, as far as we're concerned, the greatest king in Jewish history. And again, Orpah, who went back to Moab, that you won't find it in Scripture, but you will find it in the Jewish Madras. Orpah had four great grandsons, four. They were all giants. Ish, Bibinob, what a terrible name to pronounce, right? Saf, Lami, and Goliath. Orpah produced a line, a lineage that grew as enemies of God and his people because of her choice. Ruth produced a line, a lineage of people that out of came David and Jesus. Redemption. You know, don't tell me that your story can't be redeemed. 
Don't tell me that your story can't be redeemed. Can we stand, please? You and I, we get a choice on how we're going to respond to our story. Abba, Father God, he can flip and turn around any story. And it just starts with you and I positioning ourselves for redemption. You know, with every eye closed just for a moment, I just want to ask some questions that we all have to answer in our hearts. Are we going to turn our back on God like Orpah because it's getting dry? Are we going to grow bitter towards God like Naomi? You know, Ruth means friend. (laughs) Or are we going to befriend God like Ruth? Only one saw redemption. Only one saw redemption. I don't know everyone here today, and nor can I see or do I know the people that are at home. And I don't know what decisions that you've made that have marked your lives. Nor do I know the circumstances, the trial, the tragedy that you face today. But I know one thing. No matter how dry it is, Moab is always drier. No matter how dry it is, the best grapes, the best wine come from that dry soil. Today we have an opportunity and a choice to make. And so I ask, will you choose Bethlehem? Will you choose to position yourself this year in the places of God where the presence of God moves? Will you choose this year to position yourself and surround yourselves with the people of God that will speak life, life and life abundant into your circumstances? And will you this year begin to name your situation, not by the pain, the heartache, not by the circumstances, but by the promises of God? I believe God's got a redemptive story for each and every one of us. One that will lead others to the cross of Jesus. One that will free others from their bondage and their captive. Because that's the type of God that he is. So Father, this day, if that's that's you in the house, if that's you at home, all I'm going to ask is this, I'm going to pray. And if you want to capture and to position yourself in line for redemption, for things in your own your own life, just raise your hands to heaven. Don't worry about the person on the left or right. Don't worry about who's behind you. If you're at home, don't worry about your kids, your husband, your dog, your wife, your cat. Position yourself now. If you need that, raise your hands to heaven and say, hey, that's me. That's me, Father. That's me, Jesus. I'm positioning my board to catch the wave. I am positioning myself to have areas of my life that I thought that were lost, that were marked, that were scarred and stolen. Lord, I am positioning myself for those to be redeemed today in Jesus' name. Father, you know every heart. Lord, you know every circumstance. God, you can see every hand. And Father, this day we position ourselves for redemption. Father, we choose, God, like Ruth, God, to run to you, to run to the Father. Father, we choose that you would be our God, that your people would be our people. Father, we love the fact that you see us as your sons and daughters chosen, a royal priesthood highly valued god this day we rename ourselves through the promises that you've spoken and given to us all and god we become your friend like ruth father we thank you for your truth we thank you for this opportunity we thank you that we can be 
bigger and better because your promises always speak a better word into our lives. Father, we thank you that you never leave us the way that we are, but you are forever transforming us more and more into the glorious image of your son, Jesus. So Father, do this today. Begin that work now. And everyone in the house said, Amen. For those